This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, January 14th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. The new documentary Dark Money presents campaign finance reform as a powerful fix to corrupt and obscure political machinations. But that's really less than half the story. Attorney Steve Klein is of counsel at the Pillar of Law Institute. We spoke today about the dark money documentary and why campaign finance reform tends to chill speech to the point of freezing out small speakers. When the media talks about dark money, and of course that is a pejorative term that is applied to money that is spent, that is aimed at influencing elections, what, well, what do they mean when they, when they say that? Well, it's a nebulous term that's used to the advantage of the the entire campaign finance reform community. Um, at least in a at, it, at its most technical, dark money would refer to money that is not subject to campaign finance restrictions or campaign finance disclosure requirements. Okay, so that just alone, if that's the operational definition, that is a huge category of donations people make to either five hundred one c threes or c fours or groups that are. Uh, active uh, in politics, but not necessarily people who are attempting to influence any particular election. Correct. Everything from the American Civil Liberties Union to the Sierra Club to a number of uh, progressive causes, including a number of the campaign finance reform groups that are featured in this documentary, uh, are not subject to federal election campaign regulations, to uh, state campaign regulations, and don't really go out of their way to voluntarily uh, disclose that information either. So PBS produced this documentary, Dark Money. What were the general findings? Well, dark money is really a, a, a human interest piece focusing in on the state of Montana and really trying to portray Montana as a uh, state that endured a heavy amount of political corruption that was apparently cured by campaign finance reforms in the early 20th century and somehow, ever since the Citizens United opinion, has endured to find uh, ways around Citizens United and its fallout to try and keep the regulatory community that it has. Okay, so let's clarify again. The Citizens United decision, this was about a movie. Um, Hillary, the movie, which was this uh, feature-length assault, as I like to say, on Hillary Clinton and her candidacy. It definitely tried to make her look bad. But the Federal Election Commission essentially said, no, you may not put this movie in theaters. You may not advertise it on TV. You may not put it on pay-per-view, which was confusing to me because you have to pay to see something like that. Even just the advertisements for putting it onto uh, pay-per-view would constitute electioneering communications under the federal law just by mentioning her name within 30 days of a uh, primary or 60 days of a general election. Uh, so it was almost, you know, about six years before that, that the FEC declined to go after complaints against Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 9-11, which was essentially a documentary film going after uh, George W. Bush. Uh, so it, the fallout from Citizens United was that if you have independent speech, uh, if you have an organization, and it can be, can be anybody, wants to speak out about a candidate independently, whether it's a documentary film or even whether it's uh, just a, an actual straight up attack ad, uh, for, vote for, vote against Hillary Clinton, um, those cannot be banned. Corporate money can be used to spend on that. Union money can be used to finance those things. So as a result, documentary films are saved and, and many other things. And the idea here is that uh, groups of people working together, either in the form of a union or in the form of a corporation, may use, to quote, the, use the term general treasury funds in order to fund 
a message meant to affect an election. Correct. And the in the fallout of Citizens United, you had two kind of prongs that the reform community, and I, I speak of a very large, ironically, very well-funded apparatus, uh, really fo- centered here in Washington, D.C., but also elsewhere, the Brennan Center for Justice in New York, uh, the Center for Media and Democracy in, in Wisconsin. But then here in, in D.C., I mean, we're, we're here at the Cato Institute, we could probably throw a tennis ball in any direction, we'd hit one of them. Uh, the Campaign Legal Center, Crew, Common Cause. The idea that this dark money disclosed, undisclosed political money is buying policy does not speak very well of this so-called reform community because they are far bigger than the nonprofits that are going uh, against a campaign finance reform. So you've studied this issue. What were the factual assertions that this documentary made that were simply incorrect? Well, the most incorrecting is its absence. I mean, the the trouble with uh, the dark money documentary is it takes campaign finance reform and it portrays lawless prosecutions as part of that reform. It takes two prosecutions, one in Wisconsin uh, leading up to, it was ended in about 2015, and then one that from the fallout from the 2010 election in Montana juxtaposes them and presents Wisconsin as this failure and then presents Montana as a, as a big success. The unfortunate part is that they were both these lawless ideas, and I should go back to Citizens United because the fallout of Citizens United had two prongs that the reform community really seized upon. One of them was disclosure, this idea that dark money, we can just, we can, anything related to politics, we can make uh, groups fill out forms, uh, practically endless forms with the state and federal government just to engage in the political process, any kind of political speech whatsoever. The second is coordination, and that's the really the part of the, the, of dark money that's that's more interesting. Because I should add that the reform community has been very successful with this disclosure. That the Supreme Court has turned down a number of disclosure cases. A uh, more recent one, uh, Delaware Strong Families, the denial of cert drew an, uh, a pretty rare dissent, written dissent, uh, I believe, by Justice Alito and joined by Thomas. Um, so disclosure is a way to the races. But disclosure is, at the end of the day, that's that's regulation by red tape. And I have serious problems with that. But at least, to a certain extent, people are still allowed to participate only with that. You know, have just have to get through that red tape. So the, the, the burdens of uh, participation, of expressing yourself under the, the First Amendment are still quite high. Correct. The second one is let's get back to the bans because that's what Citizens United was really about. We don't want you saying anything in the first place, not just filling out forms. We just don't want you to say it at all. And the idea behind that is this idea of coordination, the idea that an organization to engage in the political process, if they're they're really doing express advocacy for or against a candidate, they're not allowed to coordinate with a candidate that they're supporting. And there's some, there's, I think, some fair, uh, a fair basis for that. The idea that we have contribution limits, the current federal level at about $2,700. So the idea that, say, uh, an independent group can just march into a candidate's office, speak to that candidate or his or her campaign manager, and they can say, we could really use your help running some of these advertisements. We already made the video. We just need you to pay it and put it on TV. Then the organization becomes a surrogate, a de facto part of the campaign, and the them paying, say, much more money to uh, run that advertisement is thereby breaking the contribution limits because they're not just independently spending. They're really doing a service for the campaign. That gets really messy in application. Uh, at the federal level, there are coordination regulations that are longer than all of the campaign finance laws in certain states, right? So you can take the entire regime in, say, Wyoming, and it's probably about half as long as just the coordination regs under federal law. 
and they're prolix and they are problematic in and of themselves, right? Again, it's a red tape problem. How do we expect the average citizen who's supposedly served by campaign finance reform to navigate this? But at least they're very specific. So those who can get legal counsel, they, they know what's prohibited and what's not. And that really bothers the reformers. Yeah. So I've spoken with several campaign finance attorneys over the years. And when they get a call from a guy who he and his buddies want to put up a billboard to promote a candidate, to promote Donald Trump, to promote Hillary Clinton and say, we want to essentially get involved, get involved in this process. And at least one of my friends, his advice, he's a noted campaign finance attorney. He said, my first bit of advice is don't do it. And his second bit of advice is, if you persist, if you must do this, then you have to hire a very expensive attorney because there are very serious consequences to overstepping some of these lines with respect to your essentially independent speech. And the point about dark money is for those who might watch the movie, they would think, oh, these are people who crossed the line. But to those of us who really know better, it, there were no lines to cross. Is this consistent uh, in terms of how media outlets present this information? Because I have to think after the Citizens United decision that in a lot of ways, uh, newspapers were really let off the hook in a fairly significant way. Newspapers regularly endorse candidates. Uh, media outlets regularly endorse candidates. Those are all owned by corporations. It's unfortunate that I think many journalists are seduced by campaign finance reform. They really go with the rhetoric. They, they think back to, to Bob Woodward and the, all the president's men and now follow the money is not just a movie quote, it's a hashtag. And they just become, it becomes this premise, this idea that if, you know, somebody disagrees with you, particularly progressive policy, surely they must be bought and paid for. Uh, that's no longer an argument anymore. That really, with a, even in this documentary, Dark Money, it is a premise. It's not the argument. It's this, oh, well, pff, people are unduly influenced by this money, and therefore we need to, to regulate it, and we need to tighten the ability. And that ends up having all sorts of uh, unfortunate repercussions uh, against people engaging in the political process in the first place, as you mentioned. You alluded to uh, coordination, talked about coordination. At least there is a, a basis in the law for that, or you, you can you can intuitively understand why you would do that because there are restrictions on how campaigns behave versus how PACs behave versus how people spend their own money in order to advance some cause or some candidate. Right. The biggest problem with dark money is it takes, and I mentioned earlier, these federal regulations, they're very specific. The states have nothing like that. Wisconsin didn't, leading up to the John Doe Inquisition, which is the prosecution they claim failed because the Wisconsin Supreme Court is bought and paid for, not because uh, the law is bad. And careful listeners of this podcast will remember Eric O'Keefe, who was one of the uh, recipients of this uh, pretty heavy-handed government intrusion literally into his home. Uh, seizing papers will remember that his story, it seems almost unconscionable. And it was, and it was, and it was rightfully put a stop to it, but they got away with it in Montana. The same story that in 2010, a Republican uh, uh, senator, state senator by the name of Art Wittich got sucked into one of these. And all he was, he was working with uh, National Right to Work, I, th I believe uh, some other organizations, and he was working on uh, basically doing things that were perfectly legal. There was one line, I think, in Montana law that said, oh, it's independent unless you're coordinating, which is basically handing over the keys to the prosecutors to go 
anything and everything is coordination. And they got away with it, and the case went all the way to the Montana Supreme Court, which uh, did not rule on the First Amendment implications of this, but actually said that that argument had been waived. Um, really nasty, a nearly $70,000 fine. Uh, they tried to go after his bar license too. Man's been a lawyer for, for three decades. And this is held up as a beacon of hope. And if, if lawless prosecutions are the beacon of hope for campaign finance reform, then I question the very premise of campaign finance reform. Steve Klein is of counsel at the Pillar of Law Institute. We spoke today. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 